we're live, we're rolling. Once again. Once again, welcome to the... Un-yet-to-be-named podcast. <laughs> Yet-to-be-named <laughs> podcast. The unnameable podcast. So in our brief communication this week, we talked... Well, we had a... I think both of us, we had a shocker. Oh, it was a shocker, yeah. An unbelievably... Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. of course, we're talking about uh, the leave vote on Brexit. To this, uh, the old Brexit, which, A, you know, I don't know. I just, why can't they come up with something better to call it than Brexit? I know everyone's already made that point already, but, you know, it, well, just, it just doesn't sound, sound serious. Armageddon was already taken. <laughs> That's true. Apocalypse already done. The the Brexit, the Brexit files, mm-hmm. uh, the Armageddon factor. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a, it's uh, well, you know, David, because you're a smart man. Um, it's it's as bad as everyone says it is. Basically, it is yeah. a complete national disaster, self inflicted by the nation. Well, the thing that just cracks me up is you know, months ago there was this uh, online or this vote to name one of the research vessels and the popular vote was um, Bodie McVoteface and those counting the vote said nope we can't do that nope no no way no how but uh, have a referendum to totally destroy your economy and take the world down with it nope we have to we yep we have to listen to the voters on that one that is one of the most that is one of the best pieces of analysis that I have read since since Thursday. Yes, it's exactly. Why can't we just do Boaty McBoatface on it? And the other thing is, I think the the example of Boaty McBoatface is a good one. If you ask people a stupid question, which is do you like the EU or don't you? Mm-hmm. You'll get you'll get a stupid answer. <laughs> If you ask people, what do you want to name this boat? You can name it anything. Of course, people are going to come up with a stupid mm-hmm. name. Uh, so, yes, exactly. Well, it's just, uh, I don't know, the line from Batman. If uh, some just want to watch the world burn. And oh, yeah. That's uh, yeah. kind of where we are right now, the Joker. I think. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so I then suggested that we, that for maybe for this week's topic, we touch on politics in Doctor Who specifically. Well, I can only think of one specific one that's, that touches on the common market, or the EU as we now call it, um, which is Curse of Peladon, of course, which was an allegory for should Britain join or not join mm-hmm. the European economic community. And I was I was thinking about that, and I I'm thinking that perhaps the Curse of the Peladon isn't the closest story to what happened this past week in Britain. And I was thinking perhaps the RTD um, story from season four, Turn Left, uh-huh. was possibly a better analogy, where Donna turns right, uh-huh. leads to the death of the Doctor. And then a little bit further in, after disaster, after disaster, after disaster, you know, we hear the lines, uh, England for the English or Britain for the British. Absolutely, and we do, we do. The, the, the non-British or the immigrant family being rounded off into labor yeah. camps. And uh, yeah. we're seeing... Uh, we're seeing very similar rhetoric coming from the right uh, right wing with post Brexit votes. So very very similar. I'll I'll say my my I I really rated that episode um, very highly, mm-hmm. but my big disappointment in that one, which I think they could have done and they could have done it very subtly, is I think there's a line where Bernard Cribbins talks about oh well I've seen this all before, and then he goes on to say that you know he saw it when he was 
fighting in the war. Mm-hmm. I wish they'd said I'd seen it all before, and then he goes into some kind of digression about the Daleks invading Earth because that would have been awesome. <laughs> because um, hang on, no, which, which, which no, it was, yeah, it was so it was it was Roy Castle in the Daleks, but it was Bernard Cribbins mm-hmm. in the Dalek invasion of Earth, the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would have been great. So you would have uh, liked the tie it into the. <laughs> exactly. So, he, so you know, so like he was, he was connected in some sort of alternative dimension where mm-hmm. the uh, the TV movie with Peter Cushing, mm-hmm. uh, not TV movie, the actual movie with Peter Cushing actually mm-hmm. actually happened and became canon because I think it should be canon because I love those th- those those movies are great. Well, if uh, Herndell is canon, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, <laughs> Peter, Peter Cushing can be canon. <laughs> yeah, that's it. The freakishly tall first Doctor. What happened to you? You grew twice as tall um, at some point mm-hmm. during your during your tenure as first Doctor. Yeah, exactly. That is that is true. But then I was also thinking of um, of you know how and when who gets political. And of course, in the uh, in the classic Who era, uh, you know, the politics is doesn't really wear it strongly on its sleeve in the... It does at times, though. I mean, certainly, if you look Mm -hmm. at Happiness Patrol, the parody of the Thatcher government, very explicit explicit there. Right, Um, I I stand corrected. There's times when the production team tries to be a little bit humorous, and, you know, like Terror of the Zygons, when the Brigadier is talking to the PM, and it's, yes, madam, and... You know, right, uh, right, for, right. For, foreshadowing uh, Margaret Thatcher's uh, um, time. I guess. That's true. I, th- I, th- I think it was Shirley Williams that they were imagining it would yes, be rather, rather I, than I Margaret Thatcher. I imagine so, but it tur- <laughs> did not turn to be that way. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, I, I'll have to say, I've, I've, I thankfully, I've wiped the Happiness Patrol from my, from my personal, my personal Who canon. Oh, you, you don't. Fifi doesn't rank up there if we're <laughs> not not really not really I mean I do like I do like the Candyman um you've got to love the Candyman um but as yeah I don't know that was a dying fall for me all mm-hmm. that um all that McCoy stuff so now yeah. I believe yeah. one of the writers either was the either the writer of the Zygon inversion or in Forest in the Night has been rumored that he is going to be writing a Brexit story or a Brexit oh. allegory for next season of Capaldi. I have and not so, seen that. Um, the, tell us that's more. The, that is that is the rumor. That's the rumor. That's the rumor. You heard it here, folks. Yeah, that is the, the extent of what I've heard, that there's huh. a rumor that there is going to be a Brexit story. I, I, I think that would be a good idea. What was, what's, what's, your, what's your own personal opinion on Forest of the Light? It's a very, it's a very divisive, divisive story. Well, there, I think there are good bits and bad bits. Um, right. I think it was nice to see the Danny Clara relationship in a little less awkward placement. True, true, true. It was also I, but there, I mean, I think the thing that some parents definitely had a problem with was with the Maeve, right? The young girl who was on medication and the doctor kind of saying you shouldn't be on medication. Now, granted, for Maeve's position, probably she wouldn't have benefited from medication, or is it trying to duller insights or the the noises or the voices or right, can't, right. can't remember specifically what she's hearing, right. but. I do know that for parents who have children who need psychiatric or, you know, type drugs like that, it sent, certainly didn't send the best of messages. That's, 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 that, 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 that's entirely true. The other, yeah, the other bit, true. I think, yeah. within Forest and Night that people didn't like is the, the sister that suddenly appears. 
at the end it's sort of like that was kind of out of nowhere and it didn't make a lot of sense or yeah i think for the fairy tale like story that moffat was trying to tell or the i I think it fit well. My wife liked that story. I think that was one of her highlights of that season. But oh, interesting! You know, I can I can understand why certain segments of fandom would react negatively to that. I thought there was certainly more clunkers in that season than in Forest of the Night. I would rank in Forest of the Night probably more middle tier of those stories that year. Right, right, right. I mean, again, yes, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, I think it set up the fairy tale thing very well, but I don't think it kind of stuck the landing in terms of, you know, giving it a who resolution. I think that is, to me, that's the uh, that's the danger with those fairy tale stories is that unless you can give it like a fully fairy tale ending, I, you know, a wizard did it. If you if you tack on a who style, it's the, the aliens and the plants are trying to save the planet by growing themselves over. It's just like, no, just, just a wizard did it. Well, I, I like I well I like that scientific reason a lot better than the moon is an egg and kill the moon. So, <laughs> I mean, yes, yes, that is that is also true. So, I mean, do, but Doctor Who hasn't shied away from allegories or addressing like Curse of Hell in the common market of the time because mm-hmm. just last se- last season we had the Zygon invasion Zygon inversion which is dealing with absolutely immigration in, into the UK or absolutely human society in, in general yeah absolutely I mean I was rewinding my mental who knowledge back to the uh, uh, the dominators um, all the way back into into uh, about into, the comments of pacifism uh, about you know it's obviously a t- uh, certainly as, as I watch it it's you stupid hippies should stop going on about like how they're not gonna how you're not gonna fight and you should fight the evil thing when it arrives I mean it's you know it's it's about mm-hmm. and I think the savages as well um, though of course that's a show that no one that I know has ever seen um, and probably never will um, again mm-hmm. has that kind of uh, again you know just reading the novelization and knowing a little bit about part of that one from uh, uh, first doctor yeah you know it's uh, you know as little as people uh, as savages are you know sa- savages is a you, know, you have to be a more of a diehard fan to seek out either the audio or find a target you novelization really of that yeah, yeah yeah and i i know it through the the narrated i think peter purvis narrates right. the uh, audio Right, of right. that, and I think that is one of the stories that benefits from being lost. Actually, right with the savages, with the elders being all in blackface, I think that story should miraculously reappear. That it would, I mean, the story is still interesting. The story is still good, but having those visuals would distract from the actual story. Now, I'm sure yeah. Peter Purvis and cast would like to have <laughs> the royalties of that being released, but right, I, right. I, right. I do wonder if some of the production values, the, yeah. the, black, the black and white minstrel show of Doctor Who type thing. <laughs> it's it's who's, very, who's very own black and white minstrel show. Right. But there is a, a you know, the, the, it's for all its kind of, you know, liberal consensus. I mean, I think certainly with, with Classic Who, there is a string of anti-pacifism possibly certainly running through the 60s and going into the 70s story mm-hmm. where it's where the, the message really is is that when you see something bad you need to stand up and fight it mm-hmm. rather than kind of you know roll over and uh, 
and uh, and take it. And I think that if you look at the generation of writers in the 60s who Absolutely. were um, producing scripts, they had all come to age in the Second World War and the aggression of the Third Reich had to be stood up to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think you know one of the interesting. Th- I mean, again, uh, yeah, thinking thinking about other Lincoln and Hazman stories. So thinking about mm-hmm. Abominable Snowman, which you know has its backdrop in um, in Buddhism, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but Buddhism as a as a kind of an exotic backdrop rather than a uh, mm-hmm. rather than an actual religion of any kind. Um, and then you know comparing mm-hmm. that to the early seventies and the Barry Letts era, you have a, a producer, well, you know, effective, you know, what I think what we probably call Letts a showrunner mm-hmm. you know who was a practicing buddhist mm-hmm. and i think that's when you know, we start to understand or we start to have more of what we kind of assume who is always is always about which is about pacifism and you know inner inner analysis of some kind well they had terence Dix also was there you know <laughs> controlling the scripts except for the ones that were by slocum and let right so that the slocum and let stories added things in like the daisiest daisy and those type of yeah. meditative reflections on of the doctor but if you look at terence Dix, has always been a little bit more rightward leaning i think a little bit more reactionary just <laughs> He'll put Sarah Jane in Robot, where she assumes that Mr. Jellicoe, Miss um, Winter's assistant, is the director of Think Tank rather than the woman. So I think That's, Dix yeah. does little twists like that just to say mm, it's not quite as black and white as you think, and everyone can make these mistakes, yeah. and you shouldn't assume. Yeah. You know, his his mentor, his his good friend Mac Malcolm Hulk, Mac Hulk. He was, you know, died died in the wool communists, but he would also do things like you you can go too far on the left and you look at the you know, Invasion, invasion of the, of the dinosaurs, dinosaurs completely yeah. is the example of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, I think, and I'd, I'd call Dix. Um, I wouldn't call him right wing. I'd call him, I think, reactionary, which is the word he used is exactly the right way to describe him. Um, Dix is basically always, well, I'm going to take the opposite point of view, whatever your point of view is. <laughs> um, <laughs> and but again, when I was thinking about this, about what we might want to talk about um, this evening, one of the things again, I think that I always understand very strongly when I think about my experience of the classic Who era, and I think this talks to the difference uh, the difference between an American Who experience and the uh, English Who experience, is that those classic Whos, especially the ones from the 1970s, or the early 1970s, the, the Letts and, and Dicks era, I primarily experienced as written mm-hmm. in the Target novelizations. And I you know, literally, I, I'd see mm-hmm. um, the Silurians until it was released, obviously, on, you know, on video in, um, for instance, um, when it was released on, on video in the early 90s. So the, so the novelizations, especially the novelizations mm-hmm. of Malcolm Hulk, which are very, not overtly political, but they are very political, that's, that's how I remember those stories. So I remember those stories as being very concerned mm-hmm. with you know, politics and society and you know, the state of the nation was a concern, was obviously a concern in the early 70s and was still, I think, a concern of, of Hulk when he was writing those books. Along with uh, Robert Holmes, it's, it's a constant... Well, yeah, obviously, it's mm-hmm. terrible, terrible that they're dead, but it's a constant source of um, 
of regret for me that those two aren't around, um, weren't around when fandom really happened so that we could fully talk to those two people because they are just so interesting. Well, I think uh, Bob Holmes definitely had a very uh, a significant impact on who, mm. uh, the mythology of who. Holmes is one uh, is another writer who's probably a little more conservative than say. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. Than absolutely. say Matt Kalk, who go for the far far extreme. But even you know, I think Bob Holmes and Dix probably were on the same. Yeah. Uh, very close politically. I don't know, you know, but just basing, I think you're right. Yeah, facing after think, hearing what uh, Terrence Dix would say on commentaries and extras and whatnot. Yeah, and I think reactionary is the way to describe them. I mean, the, I think the classic text for for Holmes, apart from the the uh, what is it, the sort of traditional, not traditional, the sort of expected low key reactionary racism that you get in his scripts. You know, like talent, talents of Wang Chiang, which you know he usually you knows just based on Fu Manchu stuff, but you know it is it is a little bit racist. Uh, uh, I think the classic one is the Sunmakers, which is this hugely entertaining story, a hilarious story, both entertaining, hilarious, frightening, etc. But you know, obviously, is totally written about his irritation of having to pay the high high, the high rate of tax a tax that protest. we had in the in the uk in the mid-1970s yes. it's, it's all it is like i don't like paying tax you know i'm a freelance writer mm-hmm. and i i have to pay all this money in tax why should mm-hmm. i um, which is all that story mm-hmm. is about basically yeah. the politics i think have have been there from the beginning you look at a story like dalek which is a definitely by the time we have the dalek invasion of earth it's definitely casting the dogs in the row as fascists yeah it's it's a react it's a reaction to what happened for these writers when they were young yes and then so the politics have changed but the rtd era opens up with ptsd doctor Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. thinking that he committed genocide to destroy his own people yeah and he was very 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 damaged by that and you know look at the whole scene with dalek where you know rose is going that may be the case daleks may be horrible but you're you're the one pointing the gun at me type stuff yeah yeah. The the yeah. politics from the early early era even to last season, they're there. I mean the politic is definitely there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one one of the things that, that really, uh, you know, obviously, you know, I, I've lived in the United States for a long time, mm-hmm. but you know, I still very closely follow as much as I can UK politics. I think one of the kind of blinding light bulb moments for me in terms of, you know, the kind of real change in UK politics over the past 15 mm. years was watching Torchwood and mm-hmm. the Children of Men um, miniseries. And uh, uh, the way that the the government, and especially the prime minister, is depicted in that as someone who is willing to <laughs> sell um, uh, the ch- you know everyone's children to like s- evil, slimy alien drug addicts um, simply to save his own skin. Um, it's like wow, we really don't think much of politicians anymore. If that's if that if that can seem to be an accurate um, science fiction representation of what a prime minister is like. Well, we currently have a prime minister that's willing to sell out his country for minor well <laughs> interparty minor, argu- <laughs> minor argument within his own, his own party. Right. Exactly, you know. So it's not it's 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 not that inaccurate in some ways i mean one thing again i think always interests me is that you know there's that is that who has always even when 
written by people who are, you know, slightly right of centre or certainly reactionary, has always, it's always been a liberal show. It's always been about never cruel or cowardly, mm-hmm. uh, never gives up, never gives in. And I'm just thinking, you know, whether whether there are actually any examples of certainly of, of TV science fiction that is written from a right-wing perspective. Um, and the reason why I think I'm, I'm asking that question, that kind of rhetorical question right now, is that, of course, the reactionary, I mean, in, in written science fiction, uh, the uh, kind of libertarian right-wing reactionary... Right, Heinlein. Exactly, is, 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 is huge. Mm-hmm. And one, one might say that, you know, that there are large amounts of the, the written sci-fi canon that are incredibly reactionary and, and right-wing. Not so in the, in, the, in, the, in the moving image, which I think is interesting. Well, I, you would look at, I think if you look at Star Wars franchise, though, Star Wars is definitely has a royalist uh, viewpoint with the, the old, rep, you know, old, old republic rather, right. than, rather than the empire, which, you know, for good or ill, probably was probably more egalitarian or a mer- more of a meritocracy, at least yeah. at the mid and lower levels. Yeah. Star Wars is kind of a weird yeah. thing. If you look at Roddenberry, Star Trek, or you know who, that's definitely yeah, more yeah. inclined to be more on the left side of the spectrum yeah. than towards the right. Thankfully, I'm not called on to argue about Star Wars that much because um, <laughs> I'm not I'm not a huge fan. Um, but I mean, I I would call Star Wars barely science fiction. It's it's a, it's, 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 it's a, a fantasy. It's a fantasy, yeah, and it has mm-hmm. you know the accoutrements of fantasy rather than the accoutrements of kind of thoughtfulness. Um, uh, so yeah, uh, even but that, I mean, I think that's one of my uh, possibly, if I have to say, complaints about the Moffat era. Moffat will allow himself and his writers who are writing for his seasons to be more fantasy than science, and I'm not advocating a hard science or. Pseudoscience that like yeah. Chris and H. Bidmead had with you know season <laughs> <laughs> season eighteen. It's so but, scientific, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> sort of. It, it had more sciencey buzzwords and more long, boring treatises on mathematics. It's and a whatnot. BBC micro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think I think Moffat definitely is science fiction fantasy rather than science fiction yes rtd i don't think it was an even an issue i think it was all about characters and story was just incidental mm-hmm, i mean mm-hmm. there are stories uh, there are stories definitely being told in the rtd era but it was character driven it asked any questions you well even look at with Torchwood what happens when the doctor's not around I yes mean, bring it bring it back to turn left what ha- what thing. would happen yeah. if the doctor wasn't there to save the day yeah and that yeah. was I think something uh, really important for RTD to get across for his own his for what Doctor Who meant for him you know mm-hmm. if Doctor Who wasn't there the w- world or at least television landscape would certainly be a bleaker weaker yeah. place which I think is, is what again I think I mean you quite accurately describe why I personally find the uh, the RTD era um, more satisfying um, than the Moffat era um, you know prefer for, for precisely that reason and I think um, the the stories that I personally find least satisfying from the Moffat era are the ones where they go full-out fantasy because I still feel that who has the potential to be a show that is science fiction rather than it's just it's you know it's 
Game of Thrones in space. I mean, it isn't like mm-hmm. that, but you know, just a full-on fantasy show where anything can happen, um, and probably will. Moffat could have had his cake and eat it too with stories like Kill the Moon, if he didn't make it Earth's moon. Yes. If you would have made it a different moon on a different planet on a human colony, you do a Frontios type thing and say, you know, it actually was that moon actually was an egg for the space dragon or something like that. You could get away with it. It's that he. Yeah. And this, I think, is a problem with the modern era. Yeah. Everything has to be related directly to Earth. Everything has to tie into modern age. We have modern companions. Yep. We yep. have, yep. you know, it has to be Earth's moon. Always ties back to the immediacy of now. I think that story would have had a wider acceptance if it was just simply not Earth's moon. A, and some, some other moon, which I would be, a, to me, would be a huge improvement to that story and would, would really not have altered its, I think, emotional impact at all and would have just made it just a little bit more credible mm-hmm. for the fans who like things to be a little bit more credible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to me, maybe that speaks to then being not enough critics in the room, you know, in the, in the script editing mm-hmm. uh, process to just say, well, you know what, Steve, maybe it would work better if this was the moon of, mm-hmm. you know, Centurus 5 rather mm-hmm. than of Earth. But again, I think I listened to Peter Harness interview and he said that Moffat really liked that pitch and he was right. he was on board with it. So, you know, yeah, it's. Yeah. Moffat's vision for the series, I think, is different than what I would do or what you would do or what others would do. But that's that's all right. We're going to get a change in another year with uh, Chibnall. Chibnall, yeah. Um, Yeah. Another classic Who fan who's gotten established in the British television industry. Mm Going to be showrunner. We'll see where that goes or if there's a BBC that survives (laughs) post-Brexit. And you know what? It's entirely it's yeah it's it's entirely possible that the BBC will not be around in the same way. Well, it's... this is a, probably a great way to finish our half-hour <laughs> podcast because just to go back to the beginning, this is a real mm-hmm. screw up, and there will be a lot of unintended and unwanted consequences. Well, it's an un- unforced error, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Britain needed to turn left instead of turn right there. Yeah, yeah, we just need to, exactly, we need to get that bug, whatever, that, that multidimensional <laughs> bug thing, that bug beetle thing, mm-hmm. um, which again, I was all, again, I, I, I hope they'd, they'd link that to the spiders of Metabilis <laughs> 3 in some way, but they never did. I, I wish they'd just done that somehow. Uh, yeah, they need to get that bug and they need to give it. Well, if they did link back to Metabilis 3, it would be Metabolus 3. Or... <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, no, not Metabolus 3. Which, again, you know, all, just go back in ADR and just fix it. Just fix it. Because I, I I really like that mm-hmm. episode, but the metabol it's like what well, it's 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 in the same level as the as, you know as uh, as uh, spelling Totter's Lane wrong. Uh, on, you know, I, it's I like, think why put in why put in a detail if you're going to get it? Wrong? I think having that uh, spelling that the, the spelling error was certainly worse than <laughs> metabolus three because metabolus uh, Matt three. The Matt Smith doctor always pronounced. I mean, you look at. Uh, you, I think it was Tom Baker's doctor who called a chameleon chameleon and stuff like oh, that. Oh, chameleon, that's true. And a, a, a chitin, chitin yes. rather than chitin, exactly. So, yeah. I mean, the mispronunciations Chitinous. of the actors playing the doctor yeah. <laughs> have, been, have been part of the series, um, dating back to Hartnell's uh, fluffs. So. <laughs> 
Billy Flaps. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's 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 a good point. Maybe I should rewatch that one tonight and and, and not be so irritated. You know what Chibnall re- needs to do is on his first outing have his doctor or Capaldi, if, if we're fortunate enough to have Capaldi in a couple years, play a visit to Metabolus Three or Metabolus. <laughs> All right, so we've been uh, nattering on here for a little bit of time, so I think we'll wrap it up. Super.